0: Well, I'm excited. Now, we've been talking about this sermon series for a couple of years now, getting into the book of Genesis. So um, I realized this week that I have uh, totally overhyped uh, this sermon series. And I'm sure you're, you all won't help but be disappointed with the preaching over the next uh, 10 years or so that we're looking through this book. Here's what we're going to do today. Two things. One is a, an introduction, some introductory matters in regards to the book of uh, Genesis. And, and then uh, we're going to look at the text. And, and I, I kid you not, we're going to get through chapter 1, verse 1a one today. So, so we'll start chipping away four words at a time in this, in this book. I'm going to pray. Let me say one thing before I do pray. A a, pretty, a a big statement, but a statement that I think is true in regards to this book that we're going to study. Uh, your life, my life, is totally meaningless without the teaching of this book. Your life, my life, just life. Life is meaningless apart from the teaching in this book. So, all Scripture is God-breathed. We affirm that. Genesis, though, is foundational for all we know of and learn of God in His holy Word. So, life is meaningless if we don't have this book of Genesis. So the pressure's on. Let's pray. And then we'll, uh, introduction and then one, one a our father in heaven. We thank you. Thank you that you love us enough to reveal yourself to us, that you love us enough to, to inspire authors to write about you, about us, about this world. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in the dark, but that your light, the light of your word, the light of your gospel, has broken through in this world. For those of us who are believers, God, on top of that, we thank you that the light of your gospel has not only broken into this world, but it has broken into our hearts. That we believe you, that we love you, that we trust you, that we have relationship with you, that we were lost, but now we're found, that we've been reconciled to you when we were alienated from you, that we have all reason for peace and hope and comfort and in this day, because of your grace extended to us. So Father for us who are believers, we pray, That You would, throughout this sermon series, as, as long as it takes, God, that You would deepen and widen our understanding, our knowledge of You, God. And that as our knowledge of You increases, our understanding of You increases, that it would dramatically alter our lives. That we would live differently. That we would think differently, that we would behave differently, that we would love differently, obey differently, enjoy life differently. So widen and deepen our understanding of You, God. For those who are here today and for those who who will be with us throughout this teaching who do not yet know You, we are so thankful, God, that they will hear Your Word. And we pray that along with Your good Word, that You would send Your Holy Spirit and You would do a foundational work in their hearts so that they would willingly and excitedly receive Your Word and believe it as the truth that it is, that they would accept it as the very words from their Creator. So, Lord, please, do a work among us. We know that we cannot reach You. You must reach us. We know that we cannot find You. You must find us. We know that we are without You able to do nothing. So, Father, we ask with great hopes that You would do something. That You would do everything. That You would change us according to Your Word so that You would receive more glory. And we pray these things in this precious and mighty, strong and great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So again, two parts. Uh, The longer section will be introductory matters. The shorter section of this sermon will be looking at chapter 1, verse 1a. And I say that so that as you feel those introductory matters taking a long time, you won't think we're going to be here until it's dark outside. In this introductory section, though, um, I've divided it up into what I hope will be some helpful sections and helpful headings. So before we get into chapter one and take a look at those first four words, we've got four introductory sections and four headings that I I want us to walk through that are hopefully going to set us up and help us to really understand what Moses is saying to us through this book of of Genesis. So first, in regards to the author of Moses and the, the timing and the the audience that that, that Moses is writing to. Um, It's written by Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these first five books of your Bible uh, called the Pentateuch, the, the five books of the law, all of these were written by Moses approximately 1,400 years before Jesus was born. Maybe not as long ago as some of you thought. But Genesis was written, as best we can tell and discern, about 1,400 years before Jesus was born. And Moses is writing to Israel. He's writing to the the chosen people of God. He's writing to this nation of God. He's writing to the nation of Israel. Here's what had happened with them. Uh, You know the story if you've read Exodus. Uh, They were under the tyranny of Pharaoh. And in bondage in Egypt. And they have just recently, uh, under Moses' leadership, they've just recently been rescued within the last few decades. And taken out of that Egyptian uh, imprisonment. And now they're on the verge. They're on the verge of entering into this great promised land that was promised to their forefather Abraham. A long time ago. So they're right on the verge of entering into this promised land. Moses is leading them. God told Moses, you don't get to take them into the promised land. Moses had, had screwed up. He was a bad boy. God said, you don't get to take them into Canaan. Joshua's going to take them in. But you get to take them right right up, right up, almost, almost into the promised land. And then he gives Moses his word to, to give to his people. And what you have in Genesis is you have... A, a narrative prose that is recounting for Israel their their personal history as a family, sons and daughters of Jacob, as well as the history of mankind in, in general. And so in Genesis, you, you can divide it into two sections, right? History of mankind and history of Israel. Chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50. Chapters 1 through 11 deal with the history of mankind. And then 12 through 50 deal specifically with the history of Israel, starting with Abraham. So the first 11 chapters, we read about God dealing with all of mankind. And then the second section of Genesis, chapters 12 through 50, we read about God dealing with his special, chosen, loved family. Okay, we read about a father and a son and a grandson. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is basically what the book of Genesis is. Second heading. Look at four. Uh, second heading. What is our approach to Genesis going to be? Or, or maybe I should put it this way. What what is my approach to Genesis going to be? Here's what I mean by that. And I hope I can persuade you to read this book the same way that, that I'm going to read this book. We are going to read some crazy things over the next year. Those of you who are familiar with Genesis, you you know. And It goes from G-rated to R-rated. It goes from expected to unexpected. It goes from easy and comfortable to read to very uneasy and uncomfortable to read. There is a lot of crazy things. I mean, starting in the very beginning, we read about God making a man from, from dirt. We read about God making a man from dirt. We read about uh, talking snakes in Genesis chapter 3. We read about a worldwide uh, flood. We read about this, uh, this floating zoo, right? We read about uh, God speaking directly to people. Uh, we read about angels coming down and visiting farmers. I mean, these are not like your life. Right? These are extraordinary, extraordinary stories. So here's what I'm getting at. Um, your Bible... And especially Genesis, but your Bible is filled with what I would call unbelievable truth. So those sound like opposites, but they're not. So what you read in the Bible is is true, but it is unbelievable truth. I mean, we will read things that 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 all of us and any of us, okay, the last several centuries who want to apply. Reason who've been taught right to apply reason and logic and, and, and a people in a culture who really want proof. We want proof for 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 everything visible, viable proof. We come to Genesis and we read things that seem totally unbelievable, and yet we're reading things in Genesis that are completely true. So. Let me say three things, three, three intentions that, that I have as I read the book of Genesis. This applies to reading any book of the Bible, but it's going to apply to reading the book of Genesis. Here are three intentions that I have as I approach the book of Genesis and hope that you would have to. Number one, first, I come to the book of Genesis with a very specific world view. I have a very specific world view. I would call it a Christian world view. I come to the book of Genesis with faith. Faith is the way I see the world. I see the world through faith. So what that means when I come to Genesis is I believe that there is one God... And this is His Word. There is one God, and this is His Word. So I believe that everything in the Bible is from God. So I do not approach the book of Genesis critically. In fact, a Christian is incapable of critical scholarship. Because critical scholarship and looking at the Bible critically means that that we're coming to it unsure. You know, the jury's out. But the truth is, right, when you became a Christian, when I became a Christian, okay, and this is proven true throughout my Christian life, I believed, among many other things, that this is God's holy word, and I believe it. Not, I'll believe it when I get there, and once I weigh it out, and once I evaluate it, and once I apply it to to science and technology. No. I decide, when I become a Christian, I decide, didn't you? I decided whatever's in there, I don't know what's all in there, but I believe it. And so you don't come to it critically, do you, Christian? You don't read and say, eh, I don't know. No, you you believe God's Word. This is God's holy revelation to us. So, when I come to crazy stories... In the book of Genesis, I believe them. No matter what, I believe them. Now, that said, there are some things that you don't necessarily have to believe after reading the book of Genesis that some of you may have been brought up to think that you have to believe according to the book of Genesis. In other words, Genesis doesn't answer all of our questions. And sometimes, I think, we make other Christians think that it does answer questions that it just doesn't. But whatever it does say, here's my point, whatever it does say, I believe it. Number two. I come to the book of Genesis and I read it and accept it at face value. I accepted it at face value. So I don't try to make it say something it doesn't say. I don't read something uh, offensive and try to make it not offensive. I don't read something that is inexplicable and try to make it explicable. I don't read something that makes me uncomfortable and try to make it comfortable. I don't read something unexplain. When I come to it, I want to read it at face value. When you read your Bible, you need to read it at face value. This gets Christians into a ton of of problems and trouble when we don't just come and read the bible and read it at face value and say well if that's what the bible says then that's what the bible says and if the bible says it it happened this way then it happened this way if the bible says that this is true about me then This is true about me. And that is going to grate against my senses sometimes. And it's going to grate against my reason sometimes. But my reason is not king. My senses are not king. My mind is not king. God's word is king. And I submit to it. That's all we're saying. So these really go together. So when you read the Bible, whether you're opening Genesis chapter 1, verse 1a, or you're opening any other book of the Bible, Christian, come to it with faith. Don't open your Bible critically. Come to your Bible faithfully, excited to hear what God is going to teach you. Number two, read it at base value. Do not... Succumb to the temptation to make the Bible say something the Bible doesn't say. One of the commentators I'm reading, his name is John Walton. He says in his commentary this. When we say that we take the text at face value, it means we are not trying to read anything into the text, nor are we trying to squeeze something out of the text. We are not trying to sidestep the text or to avoid what it makes obvious. We are not trying to subordinate the text to our own agenda or purpose. Nor are we trying to co-opt it for our theology or make it answer our questions. We are simply trying to understand the text in the way the author wanted it to be understood by his audience. That's how you should read your Bible. But we want and will be tempted to not take it at face value, particularly when it's offensive. And there will be things we will read in Genesis, surprise, that will be offensive. There will be things that you will read that that will not appeal to you. They will not make you happy. They'll frustrate you and confuse you and maybe anger you. But you take God's word at face value. Okay, a common place where this is done in our culture today as a means of illustration is in regards to the biblical doctrine of manhood and womanhood. The Bible has a lot to say about manhood and womanhood. And the Bible does not say that men and women are the same. The Bible does affirm that men and women are equal, but equal does not necessitate sameness. So men and women are very different. We complement one another, but that is Offensive. I mean, maybe not yet, or maybe not yet, but if I, if I keep going, some of you, you leave. Because when we talk about the implications of what that means, it is offensive. So, what do we do? Scripture is clear, It's very clear on these issues, and yet we don't take them at face value to where you can literally read a commentary about a scripture that says that, where Paul's talking about submission and talking about a wife to her husband or where he's talking about teaching in the church and a woman should not have authority over a man. And you can find commentaries that will say about a scripture that says, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man, that will say, well, actually, I think what Paul meant was women should have authority over a man. You're like, what? What?" You You have to add words and take words out. And what is that? It's not taking God's word at face value. As well, he says it in the quote, we don't want to make the Bible answer questions it doesn't answer. We're going to look at this, especially when it comes to creation. The creation account does not answer all of the questions that our culture asks about the origin of planet Earth. It says much and it speaks to a a lot but it doesn't answer all of the questions that people have but we want to make the bible answer everything and there's times where god says you don't need to know everything but here's something here's a bump chew on this for the rest of your life but there's other things and mysteries that we just are not going to know. And Christians can also get themselves in trouble when we don't just take it at face value. And we begin to make, with, 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 with you know, a noble motivation, but we begin to take God's word and make it say more than it actually does. Rather than just say, you know, I don't, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say or speak to that specifically. But this is what I do know is true. So, come to it with faith. Read it at face value. And then the third thing, the third intention that I have as I approach the book of Genesis is that, that I want to understand when I read this book, I want to, and any book, I want to understand the literature, I want to understand the culture, and I want to understand the purpose of the author. Okay, and this, is just, this is just basic hermeneutics, which is just how do I read my Bible and how do I understand my Bible? Okay, what, what are some helpful things? We believe it's true, Christian. Faith. Okay, take it at face value. But then there are some things that you want to look more closely at. You want to look at the context. You want to pay attention. Well, what what form, what literary form is it? Well, reading Genesis, it's narrative prose. We're just going to take it very literally most of the time. But if I'm reading poetry, which is a different literary form, a different type of literature, I may not take it literally. When it says in Isaiah that God breaks the teeth of the wicked... I don't think that he literally comes and breaks the teeth of the wicked, but he breaks the teeth of the wicked. So we want to understand, well, let's, let's pay attention. What are we reading? What genre of literature does it fall in? And let's understand it based on that. We want to look at the, at the culture. In other words, who is the audience? Because when Moses writes Genesis, right, when he writes this to these nomadic Israelites, Okay, he is speaking to them, and He is answering the questions of their day, and He is responding to the critics of their day, and He might not necessarily be addressing the critics of our day. We'll get there. In other words, the book of Genesis was not written to you and to me. The book of Genesis was written to the Israelites, 1400 years before Jesus was born. It was written for us and for our good and is beneficial, and all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But we need to see who he was writing to so that we can understand what he was saying specifically. And then finally, his purpose and his intention, which we're going to try to wrap up today. What was his purpose? Why is Moses writing these things that he is writing? What is his purpose behind all of it so that we can understand what God's word is actually saying? So we then ask ourselves when reading God's word, we say, what does the scripture say? And then what am I mandated to believe? What does it say now that I know what it says? So what do I, as a believer, what do I need to believe? because the bible tells you what to believe doesn't it okay third third heading just two more third heading what is genesis about let me let me uncover two major themes this is not everything that genesis is about but these are two significant major themes in the book of genesis number 1 genesis is clearly about beginnings <coughs> the word genesis means origin it means beginning. That's a great clue. Genesis is, a, is about the origin of, of much. It is about the, the beginnings. Uh, it is about the origin of man. In a couple of weeks, we're going to read of the origin of man. Where did mankind come from? The Bible tells us. The book of Genesis tells us. We're going to learn about the origin of the human family. The human family is God's idea. That's why when we're talking about families, talking about husbands and wives and moms and dads and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, whether we're a Christian or not, we would do well to go to God's word and see what it has to say about family because God made family. It was his idea. So we're going we're gonna to read about the, the origin of the human family. We're going to read about the, the origin of evil. At least so far as man is concerned. Okay, we will read, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, we will read about how man became evil. Now that said, here's one of the questions that the book of Genesis does not answer. Where does evil come from? I'm convinced the whole Bible actually doesn't answer that question. But the book of Genesis does not answer the question specifically of where does evil come from. We know one thing. It didn't come from God. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. But Genesis doesn't speak very specifically to that. But we do know that pretty soon a snake shows up, and he's bad, and he deceives the man and the woman, and they follow him, and that's sin, and this is an account of how man becomes wicked. So what you have in the book of Genesis, right, is we read about these origins of evil and that Adam is is basically on the, the very edge of this pit. And he has this freedom and this choice. By the way, an ability that none of us have any longer. But he has this free will and this ability and this power to choose whether or not he's going to step into the pit or he is going to stay obedient to God. And we all know what Adam does. He jumps into the pit All of us are now born in the pit. We need a rescuer to rescue us from the pit. But we are all, because of our father Adam, born very differently than Adam, with sinful natures and a bent toward evil and wickedness. Well, we find the origin of that in the book of Genesis. We're going to read the origin of salvation. In the book of Genesis, we read of the origin of salvation because we're going we're to hear about the promise from God, the promise of one who would come to undo the results of Adam's sin. Salvation. And we're actually going to read about how God begins then to save and rescue His, his people. Uh, the doctrine of justification by faith. Originates in the book of Genesis, not in Romans. Romans talks a lot, Paul talks a lot about justification by faith. In other words, our standing before God is not based on works. Our standing before God as accepted and not condemned is not because we're good people and have done good things and we're righteous and and we're cute and we're funny and we're cuddly and he's lonely and so that's why we go to be with him. We're justified by faith, which means it's not about what we do, it's about what Christ has done and us believing and placing our faith and trust in what Jesus did. Not in what we do. Huge, right? Huge. Huge. So it was like this was the Reformation in the 16th century. Well, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, originates in the book of Genesis. You remember chapter 15, verse six, where it says about Abram, that Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now just just listen to that verse. Some people want to say that, well, Abraham was righteous first. Okay, and the gods around, you know, trying to sniff out the righteous people. And he finds Abraham and says, oh, glad. Or he finds Noah and says, I thought I was going to have to wipe them all out. I'm glad I found you. Get in the boat. This is not how Scripture works. It says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What does that mean? That means that this righteousness was not his. It was credited to him. His very righteousness is a gift from God. What is this? This is justification by faith. What the? Sorry. (laughs) That felt like a dog was nipping at my feet somehow. So that. (laughs) You think this book's crazy? (laughs) It's a dog. It was duct tape. It was duct tape. Okay, justification by faith alone. Two, two more, two more that we see the beginnings of here in the book of Genesis. Uh, the first teaching in our Bible of the sovereign election of God in salvation is in the book of Genesis. Okay the sovereign election of God in salvation not man's choice but God's choice right Adam doesn't choose God God chooses Adam Adam doesn't seek after God in fact Adam hides from God Adam runs from God but God pursues Adam Abraham doesn't find God isn't seeking God Abraham is found by God it's about God Seeking them and choosing them and coming after them. As well, it's about one family, but God coming after Isaac and not Ishmael. Or it's about the same family, two brothers, Jacob, Esau. Actually, Esau the firstborn. Esau the one that would be naturally due to more blessing. And we see God coming after Jacob and not Esau. Paul reflects back on this in the book of Romans, pointing out the sovereign election of God, apart from human works, apart from what we do. And it originates here in the book of Genesis. And then finally, we see the origins of divine judgment. We see the beginnings of how God is going to deal with sin in the book of Genesis. I mean, right away the curse comes. The man and the woman and the ground and Satan. Curse comes. Consequences come because of sin. And then a few chapters later, we read about a great consequence of sin in the flood. So you have the origins of the judgment of God. So when it comes to themes, and we're looking at two of them, one is Genesis is clearly about beginnings. Number two, Genesis is also about, as is the entire Bible, But Genesis is about the spread of sin and the spread of grace. Genesis is about the spread of sin and and the spread of grace. You have in your Bible two tracks, right, that are that are running. Okay, and you have, and read about in the book of Genesis, you read about sin and consequences of sin and the increase of sin. And then you read about God's provision and God's mercy and God's love and God's grace. And the book of Genesis is is huge in regards to the spread of sin and the spread of grace. If you look at your Bible and if you look at Genesis, there are some similarities between the first two chapters of your Bible and the last two chapters of your Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. Well, you have in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, pre-sin, right? You have the garden of Eden. You have paradise. You you have and you have these things because you have no sin, right? No sin, therefore uh perfect communion with God. I mean, Adam is is walking He's walking with God in, in the coolness of the day. Like he hears God walking along with them and, and they're cool. It's good. There's no, no sin. The man is experiencing, you know, the, his greatest good and God is experiencing great glory. Okay, this is in the, the garden, in this paradise. We have, a, we have a prayer that we say, the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then, and then what, do we, what do we say? We say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You realize what we're asking for when we say the Lord's prayers, we're asking for paradise. We're asking for God to be obeyed perfectly here as he is obeyed perfectly in the heavens, right? There's, there are no angels disobeying God in heaven. And we long for, so that it may go well for us, we long for perfect obedience down here. And so the Lord's Prayer is the prayer that we pray between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. Because in Revelation 21 and 22, you have something very similar in that you have the, the, the culmination of the, of the rescue, right? So you have Genesis 1 and 2. It's this, this paradise and everything is uh, great and, and wonderful and, and, and communion with God in this garden of eating. Eating? Eating. <laughs> and then in Genesis chapter 3... Right, We'll get there, but we read, about, we read about sin. And we read about the consequences uh, of sin. And, and at that point, after there's perfect communion with God in this Garden of Eden, at that point when sin enters into God's creation, there are two options. One is judgment and the other is grace. God can either come in right now and, and kill Adam and be done and destroy, and, and God is good and just and, and right. There are two. So God can be just right or He can be gracious. And what is grace? Grace is when we are given good that we do not deserve. This is grace. When we are given good that we do not deserve. So what happens in Genesis 3 is God begins to show grace. So you have sin and then you have God coming down and being grace. He's not, he doesn't kill Adam. See that as grace. He doesn't wipe him out. And what you have for the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 3 through Revelation chapter 20. Your entire Bible is God moving towards the ultimate restoration of all things. God redeeming all things. God making things right. You know in the new heavens and the new earth, there's a tree there. That reminds us of another tree, doesn't it? The tree of life that is in the garden. We got kicked out of the garden. We're being taken back to the garden. This is the new heavens and the new earth. And so, No sin, Revelation 21 and 22. No sin, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 through Revelation 20. War zone. War zone. Your life, my life, 2012, 2013. However... War zone. We live in a day of sin and grace. There was no sin. One day there will be no sin and actually just no need for grace because there will be no sin. We'll be in this eternal state with with no sin with the Father. But now we are in this war zone. And two things are very clear today. Sin and grace. And Genesis of right, these very beginnings of this spreading of sin and the spreading of God's grace. Chapters 1 through 11, right, we read about this spread of sin. The point where there's a flood, and after the flood it's not a whole lot better. But we read about God's grace not making an end. Of mankind again, and then he comes to this man Abraham, his chosen family, and God announces there in Genesis chapter fifteen. God begins to announce his his vehicle for his self revelation and how he's going to bless all nations, and it's going to be through this family, through Abraham. Grace is going to increase. So Genesis is about beginnings. Very clearly. And Genesis is about the spread of sin and the spread of grace very clearly. Last introductory heading. Purpose. So we've talked briefly about what Genesis is about. What themes we find in here. But what is the, what is the purpose? As we mentioned before, when we're reading God's Word, it's very important to sort out. That's why, if any of you have a study Bible... Right, You have an introduction to every book of your Bible, and every introduction is going to include a section on purpose. Trying to help us understand what is the purpose and intention of this. Why is Moses writing this? Why is God having him write this? Moses chooses to include some things about history, and he chooses to not include some things about history. Why does he include what he includes? Why does he not include what he chooses not to include? What is his purpose in writing? There have been different purposes that have been proposed over the years. Some wrong ones and some right ones. I'll tell you what I think is the right one. But first, a few that we can tend to be attracted towards as as, as purposes, but they don't. They don't work. One proposed purpose has been that the book of Genesis, the purpose is biographical. Biographical. In other words, the point for Moses is to give us little mini-biographies of the lives of all of these people and, and all of these individuals. And the main reason that that doesn't work out is... All these little biographies are far from a full biography of any of the characters we find in Genesis. So there are enormous gaps. There are even gaps in the genealogies which we're going to look at. So clearly the purpose is not to just give uh, biographical information for the sake of here's some biographies for us to read. Good, you know, fireplace reading. Number two, it's been proposed that Moses' purpose in writing is moralistic lessons. Now, you know, we're a loaded gun right? on that one. We're ready to fire at that. Is your Bible a collection? Veritas Church, please help me. Is your Bible a collection of moralistic lessons? No. It is not. Right? This is the... The, the, the veggie tale hermeneutic. This is the veggie tale interpretation of scripture. Where you just take every where everything, there has to be a lesson. This drives me nuts. There is not a lesson in everything you read in the Bible. This is not Sunday school curriculum where you have to figure out what the lesson is in every little thing that you read. There is often no lesson. It is, this is God. Well, what do I do? as Americans, right? Well, what do I do? What's my list? What are the implications? What are the applications? What are the steps? What are the numbers? Give me bullet points. Something. And often it's just, uh, think about it. This is God. What do you want me to do? I don't know. Think about that. And see what happens. Maybe your life will change. Maybe your affections will change. Maybe your perspective will change. Maybe your dealing with sin will change. You do not have to. You do not have to read your Bible and try to pull out lessons in everything you read. And Genesis is certainly not a collection of moralistic lessons. Be a Noah. Noah. Be an Abraham. I oh, so bad want to see this veggie tale. The dark side. <laughs> oh, look at. You know where we're go, Let's just go there. Look at Noah getting on the ark. All the animals. These are the coloring pages. Right, the, the giraffes and the the tigers and the dogs and the be- and look at Noah, faithful and getting on the boat. Right, you hear this, still? our children, be a Noah. Genesis is moralistic lessons for you. Be a Noah, and then we just keep reading about Noah. <laughs> Let's read our next story, Johnny. Oh, here's Noah, inebriated, naked, and un. Conscious in his pop-up trailer, basically. (laughs) And with something in us doesn't want to say, be a Noah at that point. Or we go and we read about Abraham and we read about this... You know, him leaving everything because he believed God. I mean, just, just tremendous. And then we read about God coming to him, promising him, saying, listen, I know you're old. I know this seems crazy, but I'm going to bless all nations through you. Yeah, 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 I know that means you have to have children. Because Abraham and Sarah look at him, they start cracking up. They're like, well, we need to have kids. And we're about 300 years old. I don't know if that's going to work. And God says, no, I'm going to bless all nations through you. You will have children. And so you see this faithfulness and their are trusting God. And then you read about Sarah coming to her husband once and saying, you know what? I wonder if this might be a solution. Why don't you sleep with our maid? And then God will use this child. And and what does Abraham say? Sure. (laughs) Sounds like a great idea. I was hoping you'd ask, right? It's terrible. It is absolutely terrible. We cannot look at Genesis and say these are moralistic lessons for it's bigger than that way bigger it's not even a third proposal it's closer it's not even merely history i mean the book of genesis is, is full of history but but what is it it's got the history it's got some history of mankind it's got the history of israel it's a book of history. It's not just the history of Israel because you've got these first eleven chapters, which are the history of mankind. But you can't say that it's an exhaustive history of mankind. It's far from that. So it's not merely history. So the purpose, I think, the purpose of, of Genesis is covenant history. Now, hear this is this is sweet. The purpose of Genesis 4, for those wanderers, for you and me today, the purpose, when you read, it's a very special history. It is covenant history. It is the history of the foundation of God's grace toward mankind and God's gracious covenant with his people. Listen, God is a is a gracious God. And the book of Genesis is a history of the foundations of that graciousness. God's grace with all of all of mankind. And God's special covenant grace, his his let's get married grace with his people you me forever you will be my people and I will be your God and that covenantal relationship the foundations of it the beginnings of it the origin of it right here in this book of Genesis, amidst the spread of sin. So hear that. Because when you read, when I read of the spread of sin, that should equal the spread of judgment. So here's man getting worse. Here's God getting angrier. Right? Here's man running from God. God chasing him for a bit and saying, done, judgment, judgment. But what actually happens is while sin spreads, God's grace is spreading through the book of Genesis as we read the history of God's foundational, gracious covenant with His bride. So, let me boil that down. Genesis is not about man. Like we want to make every book about. The Bible is not about man. You're in there. But it's not about you. And when you and me are in there, not so good. (laughs) Pretty bad. The Bible is about God. This worship service is about God. This church is about God. Salvation is about God. Redemption is about God. Restoration is about God. Justification by faith alone is about God. Eschatology is about God. The covenant is about God. Everything is about God. And all of this is pointing us to God. So biographical, moralistic lessons, please. We just dumb it down. And make it about us. And how can I have a happy Monday? And the Bible is much bigger than that. Much bigger. But let me just give you the, the timeline here quickly so that you can see this purpose. You can see this this covenant of grace. God created everything. Here's Genesis Quickly, God created everything just right for His people. We're going to read about that. You understand, that's what God is doing in Genesis 1 and 2. God is making everything habitable and right and good for His people. We're going to talk about enjoying God's creation. So we read about God making everything just right for His people. And then we read that sin came through disobedience. And it, it, corrupted, it corrupted individuals, we're going to read. It corrupted entire families, we're going to read. It corrupted entire societies and cities, we're going to read. It corrupted all of creation, we're going to read. God makes a covenant with man. This is a commitment to be gracious to him. God makes a commitment to be gracious to him, which is why God does not kill Adam, which is why he doesn't wipe out everyone but saves Noah, which is why he promises never to flood the earth again. God is gracious. Because of sin, though, you know this by experience, and very different from what we read in Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. Because of sin, this is the tragedy, by the way. Because of sin, man does not know God, and thus man does not delight in God. This is Genesis 3 through 50. This is you, this is me, this is the world we live in. This is the tragedy. That people don't know God. The great thing in the garden was not the fruit of and the berries, and the nice weather, and the lakes to swim in, and the companionship with Eve. Those were not the great things in the garden. The great things in the garden was that Adam knew God. He was with him, which is why Jesus died once for all to bring us to God. Which is why God is the gospel. God is the good news. That's who we want to get back to. We want to get back to the garden because that's where God is. We want to get to heaven because that's the new Eden. That's where God is. I mean, you don't even need a son there anymore. Because that's where God is. But now this is something that we that we long for. We do not know God. We do not know him as we ought. We do not know him as, as much as we want. That's why in the old covenant, when there's promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah thirty one, the promise was that they will know me. Then in Genesis fifteen. Or in Genesis fifteen, God Chooses his instrument for this self revelation, and his instrument is this family. He chooses Abraham and makes a covenant with him and with his family forever. And you say, I'm not a descendant of Abraham. So is this promise for me? And the truth is what? The truth is, Christian, you are a descendant of Abraham. Abraham has a physical lineage and a spiritual lineage. And the New Testament tells us that those who love God, those who are faithful, those who are Christians, the church, we are the spiritual seed of Abraham, promise made to him, promise made to us. And God's commitment throughout the book of Genesis is grace, which unfolds throughout the book. So that's what we we see God's unlikely covenant of grace with his people. We see sin and we see the the, the consequences of this. We see man desiring power in the garden. And then we see the devastation that comes from his disobedience. We see divine judgment. We see alienation. We see shame. We see Adam and his family driven out of of the garden. We see the lifespan. As we read Genesis, we see the lifespan lowered. Of mankind. We we read about um, all of creation, save one family, being so degenerate that they are drowned in a massive flood. We read in Genesis chapter 11 about people being scattered all over the world and given different languages because of their rebellion. We see the spread of sin. And yet, even in Genesis, the voice of grace is not muted, we see it throughout. We see God coming and and here are, we'll get there, here are ashamed Adam and Eve. And you may have missed it, but God comes and clothes them. They're trying to cover themselves. They're cold. They're ashamed of what they've done. There's this consciousness of eyes on them. And a bottomless feeling from that. And yet God comes and He clothes them. We see God sparing His people. We see God protecting even Cain who killed his brother Abel. Putting a mark on him to protect him. We see God protecting His people. We see God choosing this this family. We see God's grace increase and increase and increase. So... The book of Genesis gives us the view of God that we need today. The full vision of God. The full character of God. We live in a day of sin and grace. Genesis is a book of sin and grace. And Genesis is a book of God's covenantal love for His people. I liken it to this. There was a time where when I would install... uh, Programs on my computer I can remember doing this uh, this was before I had a a, a Mac and, and so it was really difficult to do anything on my computer but I would install a, a program and I would be given all these options and I, it used to drive me crazy because I don't want options and it just confuses me but it would ask me do you want a full installation or do you want a customized installation hey anybody feeling that okay Full installation or customized insula- installation. Now, full means everything the program has to offer is, is going to be unloaded on your computer. Now, the customized installation is where you get to go in, as I remember, and you've got all these check boxes, and you get to choose which parts of the program you want to install. Okay, I think, I think this works. We have a propensity... As the church to do customized installations of God and His Word into our lives. So I want to go through and I'm just I just want this. Oh grace. Yep. I want that. I'm gonna bold that. I'm gonna highlight that. I might even install it again tomorrow. I want this. Judgment. No. No. Don't need that. Flood. Goodness, no. Lot, no. Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm getting uncomfortable, right? Just and then I'll just check. I'll just check the things that that I want. You cannot read Genesis and end up with a customized view of God. So I'm excited about Genesis for one reason that we're going to get a full installation of God. That's cool, right? Maybe not. I'm excited. Okay, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. You're like, are you kidding me? I don't even know what time it is. I'm sorry. This will go quick. Four words. Four words. If it helps you, I I wanted to go through more. And I just, I couldn't do it. That might happen a lot some 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 commentators I know it doesn't mean anything but some commentators have said these are the four most important words in the Bible I tell you they're huge these four words are just huge in the beginning of your Bible I mean, usually we just read, write, buy them and get to you know the, the good stuff as we think it first four words Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning of God. I would encourage you to commit that to memory. <laughs> Can we do that? Make flashcards and get it down by next Sunday. In the beginning, God. This is this is a tremendous thing for Moses to say. Let me just tell you briefly why. First of all, this statement denies many popular beliefs today. It denies atheism. There is no room for atheism atheism is the belief that there is no god right well in the beginning god so that's wrong that's not a very persuasive argument i understand for many atheists but i'm putting that one in my gun i think it's pretty good i believe again when we come to god's word i believe that what this says is true so it doesn't say in the beginning there were atheists that is not the Hebrew for atheists right there. In the beginning, God. So that means there is a God. How many gods? There's one God. This is great news. In the beginning, God. It also denies materialism. Materialism, the belief that, well, it's just, you know, it's just matter. It's just what we can you know, uh, applies to our senses. You know, what we can see, touch, taste, feel, and smell. And that's all there is. And there's nothing more to us. It's just a material world. Well, no, because this statement is before matter. That, That might hurt, but that is true. In the beginning, God. So there's no matter yet. There's no material world. There's no creation. There's just Creator. In the beginning, God. Now quickly, four things that this says about God. Just these four words. In the beginning, God. Number one, God alone is sovereign. God alone is sovereign. In other words, God is the sole and ultimate source of power and knowledge in the cosmos. God does not delegate anything to other gods because there is no gods. God does not give over jurisdiction to any other gods because there is no gods. There is only one God and He made everything. In the beginning, God. Now this is where context and an understanding of the culture is very important. Because if we understand the, the culture fourteen hundred years before Jesus and we understand what popular mythology was teaching at this time, we know exactly why Moses started with in the beginning God. If you actually the beginning of the of, of the book of Genesis is written like mythology. It sounds very much like mythology of the day. In fact, it sounds a lot like Mesopotamian mythology. In fact, some of the same things are included in mythology as far as historical accounts of creation and a flood and a tower in Babylon. These were historical truths that were experienced by people and were handed down and two things are going on fourteen hundred years before Jesus, just like we are today, people are trying to figure out, okay, we've got these experiences, we, we know we know this, but what is the origin of all this? And and how does this work? Today, science. Right? That's what science is. Science is the is is, is man's effort to understand the world that we live in, right? Understand, understand the origins of the world we live in. Well, fourteen hundred years before Jesus, it wasn't science, it was mythology. So, it's trying to explain through story why the world is the way that it is. So, it's conjecture, mythology is. Genesis is truth. In Genesis, God is saying through Moses, in the face of mythology, well, you got some things right. Yes, we were created. Yes, there was a flood. Yes, there are these sacrifices, and yes, there was this, this tower, and, and yes, these things you have right, but your explanation of them is wrong. Here's the inspired word of God as to our origin, and that's why it's written in a mythological style to accurately and biblically counter the popular beliefs of the day. Now, their issue was not evolution. That's the th- that people try to take Genesis and try to, you know, tear apart evolution specifically. And that's very difficult to do, just reading the book of Genesis, because Moses wasn't, you know, trying to refute naturalists in his day. Charles Darwin came along much later. It was unquestioned that the world was created. Everyone believed the world was created. Everyone believed there was a flood, but they didn't. Have the right explanations. Now the primary wrong belief of pagan mythology was this, polytheism. The world was created by gods. Why do you think Moses starts his book with, in the beginning, God? He's saying you've got it wrong. In the beginning, it were. It was not God's, it was God. Mythology taught that the flood was because of a divine annoyance. And Moses teaches no, it is because of sin. Mythology taught that God the gods needed to be fed by sacrifices. And literally, sacrifices were nourishing to the gods. And in and, and the book of Genesis says, no, God nourishes us. God feeds us. And He needs nothing from us. Mythology taught that the sun and the moon and the stars were gods. And you know why Genesis says specifically, no, God, the one true God, He made the sun. He made the moon. He made the stars. So Genesis, in the beginning, God teaches us that God alone is sovereign. Number two, God is self-existent. God is self-existent. You've heard it put this way. God is the uncaused cause. We know, we call them natural laws, cause and effect. Something has to cause everything that we see. And God has created a world of cause and effect. But the world was created and we were created by God who was not caused. No one caused God. So, He is the ultimate cause behind all things. He is self Existent. That means that when you plant a garden and the garden grows, most people today say, well, it grows because I watered it and the sun was shining on it. But Genesis teaches, well, yeah, that's true. And that would have actually been irrelevant to Israel. They would never say, oh, yeah, this is growing because I watered it. Well, yeah, they'd say, well, duh, you need to water it. But they knew it will not grow unless God causes it to grow. Unless the uncaused God who causes all things, because He is the only one who is not birthed, who is not made, who is not created, He is self-existent, which means that God is answerable to no one. See, we are all accountable to God. And the reason we are accountable to God is because God made us. If someone other than God made us, we would be accountable to that being and not God. If we were self-existent, we would not be accountable to God. We would be accountable to ourselves. We were made by God. We're accountable to God. Who made God? No one. Which means God is answerable to no one. Which means God does not have to answer to Practically, to you. God does not have to answer to me. Now, sometimes God graciously answers questions that we have, doesn't He? Sometimes through His Word. Sometimes as His providence rolls out, we get answers to questions and wonderings that we had. But sometimes He doesn't. But know this. God is self-existent. He owes you and me nothing. He does not have to answer us. And he tells his people that from time to time. Right? Stop asking questions. That's enough. What I've revealed is, is what you need, need to know. And as John Calvin said, it is the madness of men to want to know more than what God has revealed. We've got to be cool with what he's given us. God is self-existent. Two more. Number three, God is self-sufficient. Not only is God not caused by anything else, but God is uh, self-sustaining, which means that God does not need anything, which means that God is not needy. Okay, evangelistic efforts in the last century have turned towards compelling people to become Christians by telling them that God is needy and appealing to their you know, desire to befriend God. You know, it's kind of put out there like God, he's got, come on, God's on Facebook, he's got no friends, he's lonely, and he made you, and he loves you. You know, wouldn't, you, don't you want to be his friend? God did not create because he was lonely. God did not create because He he needed us. God does not need our help. God does not need us to defend him. God does not need us to worship him. All these understandings of why God created. Well, because he's a a needy. If God is a business, he's got a big sign out front that says no help, wanted. Stop bringing in the applications. I'm good. I'm fine. We've got everything we need right here. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is self-sufficient. He does not need you. He does not need me. He graciously uses us, but He does not need us. And He is, as Acts said, He is not served by human hands as if He needed something. God was not in heaven looking at the Father, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're not looking at what He saying. You know, it's getting lonely up here. You hear we've been, it's been a long time, all eternity. And why don't we make people, I mean, look around you. Seriously? Is this what this is the best that God could come up with to cure his loneliness? I'm sorry, but right? Now here's the here's the thing with, with, with this. We resist this doctrine because it's tied in our culture to our value as human beings. In other words, if I don't feel useful, I don't feel valuable. If I don't feel like I can contribute, I don't feel valuable. If I don't feel like God needs me, I don't feel valuable. This is what's behind works righteousness, right? It is this idea that I have to get enough an intrinsic value going so that I'll be worthy of God's love and worthy of His affection and worthy of my wife to love me and my kids to respect me. And it says, I need to do, do, do. And if I do all these things, then I will be valuable. So when I'm doing things right, you feel valuable, don't you? And when you're not doing things right, you don't feel valuable. And that is totally anti-biblical. That is not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that you and I are not valuable because we're useful to God and meet some sort of unmet need. We're valuable to God because He grants us value. And we just got to accept that. It is just not tied to anything within you. It is an extrinsic value assigned to you. It is not intrinsic you say it like this: God loves you. Why? God loves you because He loves you. And if you try to, if you try to get yourself a reason for why He loves you by looking in, this is how people get depressed. This is how people. This is how people end up on lots of medication. It's not the only reason. This is this is how people sink to the bottom of discouraging pits. Because if if I tie my value to some sort of intrinsic worth, and I begin to look inside to try to conjure up that value, you and I both know that a look inside does not lead to me feeling all that good about myself. Regardless of what culture is pumping out at me. I just know it's not true. I believed it for seasons. I believed it for a long time. But I know now it was a delusion. It's just apart from Him, I can do nothing. God, He gives us value. We don't create God in our image, though that's what we are trying to do as a people today. God creates us in His image. Makes us valuable. And then finally, God is eternal God is eternal you, we are not eternal we all have a beginning now we have an immaterial soul and one day we'll have a new material body in heaven and we will live forever all of us but we have a beginning god is eternal he's the same yesterday today and forever Um, The God who was, and the God who is, and the God who is to come. He sends Moses to Pharaoh. Moses says, who do I tell him sent me? And and God says, tell him I am sent you. Just I am. Self-existent, self-sufficient, sovereign, eternal God. In the beginning, God. God is eternal. Which means, this is good news, God is unchangeable. It's immutable. That means that God isn't shifty. He loves you. He loves you. If He saved you, He saved you. He's granted you mercy. He's granted you mercy. He's made promises. He's going to keep those promises. Unchanging. As well, He is inescapable. He's eternal. He is eternal. Where, where are you going to go? God says Adam Eve seriously I see you <laughs> David no you can't hide we can't hide now that is that is scary news to those of us who are in unrepentant sin because you think you've got your life compartmentalized and you think that because you think that God only sees what others see but you haven't escaped God, and He knows. Those of you who are not in unrepentant sin, and those of you who are believers, especially those of you who are suffering, there could not be a more comforting truth, and God is eternal and inescapable. Because there are times you feel that biblical emotion that David talks about where it feels like you've been deserted by God. A very real human emotion, but not a reality. Because God is inescapable. He is with us. In Genesis, we will learn about the God who is sovereign, the God who is self-sufficient, the God who is eternal, the God who is self-existent. And may God change our understanding of who He is, that our un- that our meditations may change, that our affection for God may change, that our, our, our level of and willingness to obey Him may change, that, that we may be changed from one degree of holiness to another so that God would be glorified. Let's pray. So Our great Father in heaven, we thank You that in the beginning, there You were, We thank You, God, that while our existence and and our time has beginning, that You alone have no beginning. Giving You all authority in all the universe to do whatever is pleasing to Your will. And God, this fills us with joy when we see that it is Your will to save us. So who can separate us from Your love, God? (laughs) The only thing other than You is what You've created. We cannot be separated from You, God. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for saving us. Thank You for hearing us. Thank You for cherishing us. Thank You for meeting our needs. We pray, God, that You would help us to become a people more and more. Even here as a a church, that we would become a people who give You the glory and the praise and the honor that is due Your name. We pray these things confidently in the name of Your one and only and precious Son, our Savior, our Lord, our treasure, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas truth.com.